Fieldwork acknowledges the traditional custodians of the lands on which this podcast is produced. We would also like to pay respects to their elders past, present and future and extend our respect to all First Nations people. The idea of neutrality and this assumption that, say, that, that dominant culture or whatever you want to call it is neutral, I think everything is identity politics. But the, with, with like a particular type of whiteness, it's assumed that it's neutral and everything else is political. You're listening to Fieldwork, the podcast on contemporary Australian art. I'm your host, Drew Pettifer, and in Fieldwork, I'll bring together conversations with artists and experts discussing key themes of contemporary art practice. Today on Fieldwork, we're unpacking otherness with Abdul Abdullah. Okay, my name is Abdul Abdullah. I'm an artist who's originally from Perth, but now I'm based out of Sydney, and I've been practicing there for about three years. I work across painting and photography and a few other different things. And Abdul's practice centers around questions of identity, diasporas, the outsider, hybridity and belonging. Broadly speaking, what I'm trying to do is look at the experience of marginalised people in Australia or the marginalised experience in Australia. And that can, uh, it just so happens to apply specifically to Muslims in the, in the country, but also to, to other people which I describe as misfits. Like I describe myself as a misfit. So I hope that my work is relatable to other misfits. Australia has a hard time coming to terms with its racism and xenophobia, and these issues continue to be sites of tension. So I wanted to hear firsthand how otherness shapes perception in our post-colonial context. And so the idea of being a misfit or a hybrid or an outsider, it sort of a, a, it ultimately speaks to a tension and an, and an instability in your own identity. And I'm Nikos Papastriadis, and I'm an academic and writer who spends a lot of his life thinking about issues to do with post-colonialism, migration, multiculturalism and cosmopolitanism. I asked Abdul about his self-identification as an outsider. An outsider amongst the outsiders. (laughs) Um, Perhaps that's a good point for you to come in, Nikos, and talk about where your research comes from in that field as well, because there is that interesting kind of synergy between your practices. Yeah, that's true. And there is a a lot of commonality in our motivations, perhaps, towards self-understanding and social commentary at the same time and looking for an aesthetic form that can capture that journey. Yeah. We both probably experience similar feelings of connection and disconnection. Yeah, totally. And and then wondered why that displacement occurs and from what you're meant to be. I mean, I had a strange moment quite late in my life when I was in my early 20s and someone said to me, and when will you be going back to Greece. <laughs> and I was used to saying, oh, next year. And then I thought, hang on a minute, I'm not from Greece. I was born here. <laughs> yeah. Why do I keep answering that question as if it was logically accurate? Yeah. Which is wrong. But the assumption is that because you have a foreign name or that you have a darker skin, etc., etc., whatever the marker is, that you are from elsewhere. And when, of course, you're elsewhere, you're not from there either. And you are in this limbo, and, and, and what it expresses is that you're not fully settled here, even though you're from here. And then the other, the other point of the exchange is that you might belong here, but you're not accepted as belonging from here, or recognised as such. And so that also causes another displacement and another tension in your identity. 
And so our motivation, I assume, and maybe this is something we can unpack, is to explore that tension and see if it's a trauma or a stigma or an opportunity and a benefit. Yeah. And um, sometimes you see it as a painful thing because you just resent or or you feel angry about the way in which the other person projects their stereotypes or and you want to fight back and bite the hand that feeds you yeah. or or you want to turn around and say I don't care or I, I enjoy this um, this error because this mistake gives you a space and to redevelop and open up another pathway for yourself so this sort of outsider insider thing is interesting because on the one hand you say to yourself who cares about who's the fit in types <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the misfits are interesting in themselves and I'd rather feel at home with them yeah and also the insiders are probably are getting fewer and fewer these days everyone is starting to scratch away at the surface of their own biography and find complexity that they glossed over in the past find differences that they're which they might have submerged or repressed and now wanting to articulate and give voice to. I was just going to pick up on the word complexity mm. and that's something which I've been looking at recently and when articulating my work is that what I'm trying to do is to ask a demand of others to afford other people the complexity and specificity that they afford themselves. So if they can do that, that's that's empathy. <laughs> and if they've got empathy, then we can all move forward together. And that, That's one of the key motivations for my practice. How do you think that plays out as well in actual, the work itself? So is it around representation or is it about kind of challenging um, existing social mores? How do you... A little bit of both. Oh, a little bit of everything in that respect. Well, I, I, what I'm trying to do is, well, at first uh, in the early parts of my practice, it was I was quite ham-fisted and naively trying to demonstrate the, the positive aspects of people like me or people that I related to, like trying to say that, hey, we're all right too. But that, like... I quickly got over that <laughs> and that idea of trying to pander or trying to make other people feel comfortable with it. And rather, I looked more at the tension and, and the tension coming from perception. And there was a, a phrase which I heard Walid Ali say in another interview which kind of struck a chord with me was that uh, in, term, in regards to racism and that type of bigotry, that type of, that type of bias, uh, your actions, your, the reality of your actions and beliefs are irrelevant to how you're perceived. And once that sort of sunk in, I, I started looking a lot more at that perception rather than demonstrating actions and belief. I'll just look at how uh, toxic that perception can be. I agree. I mean, this whole point about um, us proving yeah. that we're worthy or us proving that we're equal or often means not that we're equal and therefore and, and worthy, therefore we're entitled to have a conversation with the other person. No, it means we're trying to demonstrate that we shouldn't upset the other person for being different. Yeah, yeah. And that that difference to them is a, 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 a threat to their security and their ability to engage with you rather than an opportunity to explore something that's not the same. Yeah, yeah. And so there, there is a lot of pandering, as you say, as everyone is trying to fit in. But in the process of fitting in, you're cutting off big hunks of yourself to perform according to the space that the other person has constrained and constructed for you so that it doesn't disrupt their either their preconceptions or their own self-model. So you have to enter into the house that is built by them. Yeah. 
play which by their might, rules. Which might be a house that they don't want to live in, but <laughs> yeah. they can have as an appendix to their own house, or it means that we have to fit in as a servant to their their space. And, uh, or, and, and, and it gives no space for them to step out of their own space and into another space, which might not be mine, but just might be another neutral space, from which we can both have a conversation as, as relative equals. And so no one grows in that situation. Totally. They stay the same, and we have to reduce ourselves to fit in and conform to the packages that are defined by others. But the problem with that is not just the violence that I do upon myself. It's the negation of the opportunity to grow and experiment and have fun. It's just saying, you know, you have to fit into my, my territory in order for you to be a valid player in this territory. Yeah. And that is a territory of identity that they have constructed. And, and the way in which that is constructed is as political. Yeah. So if you come in and say, let's hang on, let's talk about the field a little bit. They go, oh, my God, you want to change everything. No, we want to just talk about the possibilities that we might think of new rules. Yeah. I mean, no game in sporting contexts, no game in any political or cultural context has stayed the same for very long. They all evolve. Even cricket apparently has changed its rules. <laughs> you know? So even a conservative game like that has evolved yeah. and is changing and is acknowledging the 21st century and technology, etc. So if cricket can change, <laughs> God help, why can't culture? <laughs> yeah, totally. totally. One thing I want to pick up about that as well is this idea that in your work, one of the other things that has interested me about performance identity is the idea of masculinity as well, which is often kind of seen as a secondary discussion in your practice, but something I see is quite central as well because a lot of what you've done has been around how you perform the identity of a man within your, um, your context as well. Yeah, I guess that comes out of using the body in the work and, and the particular type of portraiture and the way that I play, I guess, with vulnerabilities and strength and, and that uh, the tension between these two. And I think that's, kind of like, that's really interesting... Um, like an interesting field to sort of bite into. Uh, it's not something that I think about explicitly in the work, but more something that comes intuitively, I think, with my, with my character and my upbringing and, and, and how that... and how I question myself or have come to question myself in my adulthood about my like masculinity and where I sit and, and how I relate to the world. Because you do use your body a lot in your yeah. work as well, um, through performance, not just of your own identity as well. It's not just like you're taking self-portraits. They're also actively performed yeah totally like oh maybe that it's hard it's hard one to to sort of for me me to articulate but i i guess that that comes from a particular heritage and also like uh the idea of what the body means um and weirdly from a boxing background coming from like that sporting background as a teenager and that particular type of uh, sport where you're quite literally on a stage and it's your body that does all the work and your body that's on the line, uh, that seemed to uh, translate quite naturally for me into an art practice. Because mm-hmm. when it comes to the question of otherness as being a threat, I think it is that kind of nexus of different identities that um, have that play out in particular ways mm-hmm. as well, particularly when it comes to young Muslim Australian men, yeah, yeah. which has been you know, a, um, a point of contention for almost 20 years now, mm. in a particular kind of public discourse. But also this um, use of the body as a medium for speaking also might, might announce in a strange way the lack of space for speaking otherwise. Yes. 
And so that for certain kinds of young men, as they're growing up, the possible forms in which their bodies can enter into the society is, is perhaps truncated, is reduced. And, and the way in which their body can be received is already um, instrumentalised as either a sporting or a physical or a kind of way. And so you use your body as an instrument for talking because other parts of your relationship between your body haven't found a vocabulary or the vocabulary in that society is not given space to grow. So, yeah, I can, I can see how a lot of young men, because they're treated like boys, they become hypermen as they enter into that space where they're just meant to be men. Yeah. But the transition from boy to man has to sort of either leap into this hyperman space or, re- or stay in this subordinate boy kind of role. And, um, and it again speaks to the lack of sophistication in our culture for understanding masculinity and the way in which masculinity can speak mm. without threat and, and intimidation. Yeah. Look, so much of the allure, I think, when we talk about sports, and I think it's a good metaphor, is, um, is uh, the idea of claiming a space for a person who doesn't have any and claiming some type of agency and, and self-determination. And, like, a, a reading, like, I studied a bit of self-determination theory when I was doing my master's thesis, and they talk about self-determination in, in regards to education and the ABCs of self-determination, which are autonomy, belongingness, and competence, mm. like beyond food, shelter, and safety. Like, they're the three mm. things that we need and the three things that are repressed and suppressed in people. Mm. And, like, after working a lot with uh, at-risk youth, whether in outreach programs, juvenile justice facilities, it seems most of the times, especially with the boys, when they're getting in trouble, it, they're getting in trouble in the process of claiming that space somehow mm. in a really dysfunctional way. Um, and I guess that comes back to the, the art practice one of the obligations that I feel I have, especially when working with these kids, is demonstrating a functional way to deal with a really dysfunctional situation and a way to sort of claim space for themselves in a way that doesn't hurt or, you know, obstruct anyone else. It's also learning how to deal with frustration. Yeah, totally. Because nothing goes as you want it to go. And one of the things about training is training to deal with frustration and, and, and dealing with delay of satisfaction and building yourself up in order to get to your goal yeah. so that you can communicate your needs in a way that eventually uh, reach their destination. And so a lot of the times, you know, even I can imagine when you work with um, marginalised youth and so-called dysfun- kids from dysfunctional families, they've been given no vocabulary and no um, grammar for dealing with their own desires and their intentions may be wonderful but because they can't realise them and there are obstacles put in front of them constantly, they don't find an alternative pathway that can also be constructive. Yeah, totally. 
Is that the kind of scenario you've been working in? That's exactly it. And even, like, you're just language is the thing. Like, working with a group of boys here in Melbourne, and they're all between 15 and 17. It's a couple of years ago. But none of them heard the word stereotype before, let alone yeah. knew what it meant. Like, that type. But they intuitively do. Yeah, yeah. So once you explain it, they they, they, they knew the word, or they knew what the word meant, or they knew exactly, <clears throat> like, being stereotyped, but they hadn't didn't have the language to describe it. A simple thing like that. But they had your body to work with you as a body and as a person to stand between them and the and the law perhaps and that's an, uh, that's an interesting space the fact that you are put in that scenario and they've gone through their own really vulnerable period of transition between boyhood to adulthood and that sort of huge yeah huge multiple processes of alienation happening at the same yeah. time and then suddenly you have this identity that you can that's right. start to see performed in particular ways that may actually offer some way forward they have to invent yeah. for themselves exactly. a new identity Right, yeah. and in that sense, they, these kids had the space to be artists because that's what we're all trying to do as writers or artists is actually say, you know, none of these boxes fit. Come back yeah. to your Im- yeah, the mis- fit. Yeah. Now, so what does it mean? Do we just blow up every box in the world <laughs> or do we make a new one? <laughs> yeah, totally. That's it. And I mean, you just reminded me of the kind of etymology of the word, you know, misfit. It's very specific. <laughs> yeah, you, know, yeah. you don't actually fit into these identity boxes that have been constructed for you. Um, but it's interesting as well this idea that misfits being role models in a way as well, in the, way, in the sense that you, know, you identify yourself as a misfit, Abdul, but these young men that you're working with can suddenly say, ah, this might be a way forward for me, a, a way for me to start to rethink my identity yeah. as well. So to combat that, that accumul- accumulative sense of like alienation and dislocation, at least isolation, that sort of having someone else there who's been, has a relatable experience, not without claim, ever claiming their experience entirely, but just having enough shared experience that they can grasp onto. And if they can grasp onto that, they can take some claim or ownership over the conversation and in doing so, you know, get agency. Exactly. I mean, as Nico says, they're having to carve out a new space. There's nothing mm. there for them that, that lays out a clear path, but at least you offer some kind of signposts. And it was fun, like when I was growing up, like I went to say some of the primary schools, especially I went to, were religious schools. So I went to like Malik Fahad Islamic School in Sydney, and it like there's these older guys, you know, you know, not complete, not old people, but like you know, in their twenties, and they're always advocating the straight path, right? <laughs> pushing, pushing the straight path, and I. I'll come in, especially when talking to these young guys, and talk about the wobbly one. That is fine. Yeah, there's no such thing as a straight path, is there? Really? Totally. We, we're <laughs> gonna, anyone? <laughs> you know. We're all gonna fuck up. It's just yeah, sort of. Yeah, yeah. It's more honest. <laughs> yeah, that's totally, it. totally. Pay attention to the turning points. <laughs> yeah. And the idea that if our life is a book, they've got the best first chapter. That's <laughs> like, you know, an interesting one. So. In the context of all of this, I'm interested to hear a bit about how you think about the politics of your work playing out as well, because, I mean, what we're talking about is kind of um, very socially oriented, but there doesn't mm. seem to be a singular kind of political approach within your work either. It's not a particular type of, you know, political diatribe coming through either. No, but I think that kind of lends itself to the complexity we were talking about before, and also I've, I've perhaps got a little bit of criticism for that about not being so specific or so... Uh, particular about what I'm saying in the work, but rather, but I, I, what I'm trying to do is, I don't want my propaganda. I don't want to hit anyone over the head with what I'm trying to say. Even though I've got like a, I'm really, I've got an agenda. All my work is embedded with agenda. 
what I'm trying to do is seduce my audience into a conversation. So that, that whether it's aesthetically, uh, politically, conceptually, like whatever I can, I want to have as many access points as possible and then bring people, uh, bring people into the conversation. And they might take something uh, away from it that is completely unrelated to my, my intention, but that's great. I think that's fantastic. The, the different readings just, for me, make the work more interesting and yeah, give it more legs, I guess. Mm-hmm. That's a very important point. I mean... The word seduce is easily misinterpreted. It's not seduced in the sexual sense. No, no. It's seduced in the sensory sense. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what art does. I mean, that's all it can do because art is not a gun that you you can hold to someone's head. No. And it's not also a, a textbook that tells you the truth. No, no, no. You know, it's not a book that says if you follow these instructions, you'll come out beautiful. <laughs> On the contrary, it just says... Mm, isn't this attractive? Come into this space. Maybe things will change. And that sort of, um, and right now as I'm speaking, I'm sort of twirling my fingers in that sort of so-called siren way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Come to me. <laughs> but my point in all that is that art operates in the sensory realm, not in the pedagogic and not in the power way of threat and force. Yeah. It can't convince you and it can't threaten you. It must only allure you. And so it does try to seduce you. And that's a very important space to keep open and, and to be mindful of. And, and you're right, you know, your work has to, and as it does, operate in this kind of nebulous zone that's not as clear-cut as power and mm. teaching. And it's not, as, it's not instructive and it's not threatening. It's meant to be beguiling and and provoking curiosity and wonder. And that's a wonderful thing to have in our, in our place. Mm. But there is that tension as well between seduction and also kind of a confrontation in some of your work too, which I think plays out that tension very well, where it's no longer just something alluring and that's the end of the conversation, where it's something beautiful yeah. or aesthetic. There's actually, yeah. Well, the seduction doesn't have to be unchallenging. Like, that's it. Yeah, it, that, that, that's part of it. And the, a word that I picked up on, actually, from that Next Wave Festival, and did it in Melbourne years ago now, but they, it was uh, Emily Sexton would always talk about generosity in work, and it's something which stayed with me, the idea of work being demanding but also generous in that the more time you spend with it the more you get back mm. and um, not being well not overly demanding is the wrong word but if it is challenging you know having that rewarded there at yeah. the end otherwise it's sort of it's in a way your, your work does both doesn't it, it has that yeah. seduction and there's a generosity in it where you open mm. the, the space for the for the viewer or the audience to come in and, and access that Yeah. but then once they're in there there's all these ideas that start to pop in where mm. the audience is encouraged to, to rethink how they engage as well. Yeah, and, and let's let's stress that point that seduction mm. is not meant to be pretty. Mm, mm. It's not confined to something that's pretty. Seduction can also be compelling. Yes. And compelling can have force, a different kind of force yeah. to, the, to the one with the gun. It's a force that is compelling because it's alluring and intriguing and baffling and threatening, but threatening in a way that's destabilizing rather than simply pushing you in one direction or another. It's maybe taking the ground away from you and displacing you and putting you in a different kind of um, time and space kind of configuration. So that kind of um, seduction is a lot more complex and it does come from an agenda 
But it's not a singular agenda. No. It's a kind of diffuse, and you might have anger. Um, I sometimes do. My wife says I do a little bit too much sometimes <laughs> in terms of the way I react to certain senses of what's going on in the, in the world around me. Yeah. Um, but that anger often is drawn out in very complex ways. It's like a pulse that keeps recurring, but you can't see it. It's like a thumbprint that keeps manifesting itself, but it's not automatically discernible. Um, it's something that recurs and reiterates, but constantly changes as it manifests itself. So that force that comes out of us probably comes from a, a sense of indignation that, shit, you know, there must be something better than this, or, or, or an anger that, you know, this rubbish that we're being forced to swallow and this recognition that not everything is being distributed in a fair and equal way. And, and, and those facts are around us all the time. And so it's no surprise that sometimes, if not most of the times, a, a big part of the energy that's in our desire to write or to make up visual art is because you, you want to have a go at, at, at the, these injustices. Yeah. That's what motivates you. Yeah. yeah so much of the time it's just... It's responding. I look at art uh, as uh, serving a similar function to journalism, but without being burdened by objectivity. So, <laughs> <laughs> like, I can be responsive, I can be reactive, I can be emotional. Yeah, well, I found that I gave me a voice where journalism it, didn't. Where thing, uh, if I wrote something as a young journalism student, it would be dismissed outright. But if I produced something with a similar message, but in, in artwork, the people would sit with it and they'd linger with it, and it would sit with them longer. Probably we, we discuss things, we're very frank with each other. I am Michaela Tai and I'm the director of 4A Centre for Contemporary Asian Art in Sydney. I've probably been working with Abdul for almost a decade. So I first came across his work when he was preparing to be part of Next Wave in Melbourne when I was based in Melbourne. He was still in Perth then, but I became quite close to... Um, Casey Ayres, Nathan Beard and Abdul Abdullah when they were working on a project. Um, and I was really excited by the kind of voice they had and the way that they were addressing these bigger questions of really race relations in Australia in a way that was playful. And I think sometimes this conversation, you know, it's very dense, it's a very heavy and a complex, nuanced conversation, but they were creating new avenues or access points in which we could discuss it through visual language. I spoke to Michaela about how otherness is deployed in an arts context. I wrote a paper in my honours year about something and then it ended up being in a panel. It was my first conference I'd done and it was about um, historicising whiteness and I really didn't know what I had bitten off, but it became quite clear that this is a touch point. And since then I've kind of been teasing out ideas of how Australia wants to see itself and how we categorise or address artists and how that sort of structurally is encompassed or housed within our, our institutions. Um, and times it's been quite a critical conversation. It's not been an easy conversation, but it's very much part of what I think is important going forward for contemporary Australian art. Mm. And contemporary Australian culture, yeah, I imagine, exactly. as well. I mean, yeah. there are still ongoing debates about um, these these issues about around... Yeah, um, and I think um, we're, we're seeing things where there is change, but it is a really slow change and it has to, it's a big sort of structural, maybe it is a generational shift that we're waiting for. Our boards are still 
look like the same people that they did a few years ago. The directors of major institutions still look like the same people they did 20 years ago. Um, and until that really starts to change, we'll then see it trickle down and begin to show really kind of different questions can be housed within these bigger institutions. Mm. Have you seen change even since you started your PhD research or post your honours? It does seem that there have been definitely I mean, shifts in the, in the art kind of... Um, I think people are very aware that this is something you can't ignore anymore and that's probably the, you know, the best um, outcome um, and that's been imperative, I think, to also the next generation of artists that come up or um, even just the general public to see more people reflected within our institutions is kind of the ultimate goal, that anyone that walks into any gallery will be able to see their story or their concerns given space. Artists are also engaging with these ideas in ways that aren't just about identity politics. I think some of the reasons I really like Abdul's work yeah. is because he's not just saying, this is my identity, No. take it or leave it. He's actually engaging in a political discourse beyond yeah. identity politics. And I think, you know, sometimes identity politics gets a bad rap and I think we're actually in like maybe 2.0. It's much more complex than that and I think it's been and previously really easy to be like, oh, it's identity politics that belongs to a certain people but now I think everybody as a society were implicated in this conversation and that's the shift that we've seen and I think Abdul's been very clear in articulating that. These ideas of otherness have also become a, a trope within contemporary art in recent years as well. So I guess the discourse mm. in contemporary culture is shifting at the same time as within the arts, that mm. dialectical relationship playing yeah. out. Can you discuss a little bit those kind of um, intersections that are happening and, and what that has done within the arts as well. I think probably right now we're in like a really interesting transition period. I think maybe in 20, 30 years we'll look back at this moment as being a real point of shift where identity politics have become sort of society politics maybe. Um, and the idea that questions of interaction between people or maybe I think it's actually even bigger than that. I think it's about... Um, structural changes or the infrastructure that we use to house and support people and you know even interestingly in Australia where prizes are really important we've seen shifts happen um, where people and the status quo has changed so the same people don't win every year and that's been really refreshing um, when you see announcement of new exhibitions at places there are always new voices and that we haven't always had that and the idea that people are open and engage with this from across different social um, class ethnicity um, and they feel like they can engage with this that's probably been the biggest transitional shift where it will go or how far it can go is kind of the exciting thing we're part of but i'll be interested to see if interested to, to watch to see if our big institutions can do major shows of important people of color we're still waiting for that at the moment everyone talks about Diversity, that word is kind of problematic because it should be replaced with reality. So if we're looking at, um, you, if you say you want to talk to a diverse audience, you actually mean you want to talk to the reality of our population. So it's actually our community. It's not this weird subcon, you know, subsection of something. It's actually just reality. So if we actually put reality and show exactly who's in our country, in our spaces, that's when things will get interesting. I think, and I think Abdul is probably one of the most exciting things about him is that he is, he walks the talk. He doesn't just work within his studio talking about these things. He's out working within the breadth of Australia's sort of um, suburbia society. He's 
constantly working within the workshops within high schools, he is empowering the next generation to be able to talk about whatever they want to talk about in whatever form they want to talk. That's kind of more than just an artist working there. It's, a, it's every inch of how he practices as a human. Fieldwork is produced by Shannon Goodwin and me, Drew Pettifer, and supported by Bus Projects. Audio production, editing and mixing by Beck Fari. Our theme music is by Martin King. Lachlan Sue is our graphic designer. Our intern is Jake Davies. Special thanks to Abdul Abdullah, Nikos Papasidiadis and Michaela Tai. That's it for this episode of Fieldwork. For past episodes and information on how to subscribe, head to fieldworkpodcast.com.au. See you in a fortnight for the next episode where we'll hear from Yuani Scarce. With the Stolen Generation, the whole purpose was to breed out Aboriginality. They thought, oh, well, they could be successful in doing that. And it just shows the resilience of us as a people. That's next time on Fieldwork.